All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel. We're going to be looking at chapter 6 this morning. We've been in John's Gospel, chapter 6, for a few weeks. It's a very lengthy chapter, 71 verses. And so we won't finish the chapter today, but we're going to finish it next week, Lord willing. But there is a lot here. And um, so let's just, uh, if you remember, this was the chapter where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and actually it's really more like 10 or 15, maybe even 20,000, with women and children included, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and so we saw the miracle that Jesus did by multiplying the bread and the fish. And then right on the heels of that, Jesus gives a very special, unique sign to his disciples demonstrating that he is, he is deity, that he is God in the flesh, that he has control and power over nature, over physics. And Jesus, if you remember, last week we looked at this, where he walked on water as the disciples were now moving from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, now to the western side, over to Capernaum. And there was a storm, if you remember, and there was a... The wind and the waves were very large, and the disciples were very nervous. And it says that in the fourth watch, which is somewhere in the early morning hours, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus walked on water out to the disciples. And then ultimately, they, because of the wind, they were blown off course. They ended up Gennesaret, which is a little bit north of Capernaum. And that's really where we ended last time. And, and now we, this morning we get to look at this discourse that Jesus had given concerning him being the bread of life. And this is going to really take us two services to get through because there's uh, quite a bit of material here. But let's read just from verse 22 to verse 40 and then we'll come back to it. Notice what it says is on the following day, after this incident of Jesus walking on the water, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side, meaning the east side of the sea, saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, Other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread and after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, on the western shore, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you show us then that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you this bread from heaven, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said unto him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all who he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Father, we thank you for this passage, and Lord, just encourage us in it, Lord, as we consider, Lord, you being the the bread of life, Lord, our very sustenance, Lord, more than our necessary meal and meat that we eat, Father. And so, Lord, help us and encourage us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Ah, very interesting. Notice, Jesus, if you recall, in the beginning of John chapter 6, he was somewhere over on the western shore in Capernaum. And then Jesus, with his disciples, they come over to somewhere over on the western side, or the eastern side, the eastern shore over here uh, in Bethsaida. Bethsaida kind of goes around the top of the north of of the Sea of Galilee, and over on the sides as well. So somewhere over on this western side. And you remember that after the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, that Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side. So they're over here in Bethsaida, and he wants them to go over here to Capernaum in this area over here. And so you recall what happened. Jesus went up into the mountain and began to pray, and the storm arose, and his disciples are rowing frantically, trying to get across this the Sea of Galilee, which uh, is quite a, it turns over very quickly because it's in a valley and the wind can come rushing through and just turn that water very quickly. These were very seasoned fishermen. They knew this. And here they are in the midst of the sea, somewhere in this area, right in the middle, and they're rowing and nothing is happening. And instead, they're getting blown off course and they keep getting blown off course. And that is when Jesus walks on the water and comes out to them from this area over here, and he walks over to them, and then they land at Gennesaret over on the, on the western shore. And so this is where our story takes place today. It's not a story, as you know. I hate that word, uh, because when we think of stories, we think of fiction, and the Bible is not fiction. The Bible is history, but it's a very specific history, and it's very pointed. It's very. It's got a very unique slant to it. It's it's meant to give us the plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption being drawn out in so many different ways. But notice the people on the other side who were on the eastern shore. They're looking for him. They're, they don't know where he went. His, they saw his disciples get into the boat, and they didn't get very far because they were out there for quite a while because the wind was so bad. And they didn't see Jesus anymore. So they were thinking, you know, what's going on here? Notice in verse 23 in our text, it says, However, other boats came from Tiberias. Tiberias is this city named after the Roman emperor, uh, Tiberius Caesar. And they were, these boats from here were coming all the way over to Bethsaida. 
And they had just showed up around this time that these men and women, this multitude, is wondering where his disciples are, wondering where Jesus is. They kind of like this Jesus guy. He shows up and feeds them. You don't have to work for it. You just kind of show up and he, he breaks what's there and he blesses it and he multiplies it. But Jesus knew their motives, as he knows ours as well. But notice... So these boats come over from Tiberias to that area of Bethsaida, near the place where they ate bread and after the Lord had given thanks. And the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, and they also got into boats. And so they come from here all the way over to Capernaum. And so they do that. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice they were seeking him. And praise the Lord that they were seeking him. Jesus will kind of upbraid them a little bit for their motives in seeking him, but they wouldn't have to search hard for Jesus because at this point in his ministry, he was very popular. He had been healing many, and he was drawing quite a crowd wherever he went. People were wanting to be healed. Demon-possessed people wanted their, you know, people wanted their demon-possessed family members to be exercised, and people needed to be healed. So he was very popular and very well known, very hard to miss him because wherever he was, there was a throng of people around him. Remember that phrase where it says, I found Jesus? I remember when I first gave my heart to the Lord, I said, I found Jesus, you know, because I was so excited that I found him. But the truth of the matter is, God had known where I was all the time. He actually found me. I was running away from him, if you can do that. Where can I go from his spirit? Where can I flee from his presence, right? Isn't that what the psalm says? There's nowhere I can go that I can get away from God, but we try, don't we? We try to flee God, because in the beginning, we don't want anything to do with God. We like our sin too much. But I was running from God, and finally I found God, but rather he found me. He found me. I love what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. And I love it. In John's letter, he said, in this is love, not that we love God, But that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the substitute. And that's the nature of God. He's the one seeking. I I thought I found Jesus like these people. They found Jesus on the other side. But he knew very well their motivation. And he knows our motivation too. And hopefully our motives are very easy and simple and pure. Because the Lord likes a genuine heart. We can be honest with him. We don't have to pull any wool over his eyes, because you can't. Try doing that with someone who is omniscient. Try doing that with somebody who knows the very words you're going to speak next. It's impossible. You can't hoodwink God. It's better just to be outright and honest with him. You know, there's a freedom in doing that. I like to be honest with him. Even the good, the bad, and the ugly. (whistles) Right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. 
Just be honest with him. He knows it already, so why hide it from him? Tell him your deepest, darkest, ugliest garbage, the filth of your heart. Confess it. Give it to him. Talk to him about it. Say, Lord, I want to be delivered from this nonsense that's been plaguing me all my life. Lord, I'm sick and tired of being bludgeoned over the head with this issue that I've been struggling with. Do you have struggles? Then be honest. Be honest with him. But they found him. They found him on the other side. But he knew where they were all along. I love what it says in Psalm 14. This is a, such a humbling verse. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. And notice the response of God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. good. No, not one. That kind of humbles you, doesn't it? It kind of takes the wind out of your sails. Now you realize, wow, I'm really not all that. And it's true. But are you still seeking the Lord? Christians, brothers and sisters, are you still seeking the Lord? Or are you content living the way you're living? Living maybe with your ticket stamped to heaven and just wanting to live the way you want to live. Just having your fire insurance, but nothing else. If that is the case, you're missing out on so much because people today we know are living their lives with empty pursuits, looking for love in all the wrong places. And isn't it true when you find Jesus, the search is over? The search is over. There's no reason, there's no need to go anywhere else. There's no need for anyone else because there's no one else under by whose name we must be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? I love that name. Do you love the name of Jesus Christ? It's a name that the world doesn't want to hear. The only time I heard Jesus Christ is when I heard somebody smack their thumb with a hammer. But church, we need to lift his name. That name has power. There's no other name that has power like his name. When his name is spoken, when his name, when his character, when his, when his heart is preached, demons flee. They must. Because greater is he that is in the in you than he that is in the world. Amen? I love the power of Jesus. He's all-powerful. There's no one more powerful than him. Remember that and revel in that. Rejoice in that. He is all-powerful. But these people, they were seeking Jesus, but not for the right reasons. Notice what it says at the end of that verse. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice that Jesus never answered the question. How did you get here? We didn't see you go across to the disciples. Did you have one of those hoverboards? Did you have one of those jet skis, Jesus? How'd you get from over there? They're puzzled. And Jesus didn't tell them. Any other man, any other man of God might be tempted to say, well, let me tell you how I got there. Roll the tape. And they see Jesus walking out. Yeah, that's me. Look at me. My sandals didn't even get wet. Look at that. I walked all the way across. What do you think of that? Yes, that's something, isn't it? See, men would do that, but Jesus never answered the question. But this sign that he did of walking on the water was only for those men in the boat. Only for those men in the boat. Now they are understanding. The onion is being peeled back. The facet of the diamond is becoming more real to them of how great and wonderful he is and what he is able to do in his miraculous power. Seeing him walk on the water, no one has ever done that. 
So he revealed it to them only. There was no news at 11. You know, Carpenter seen across, you know, running across the Sea of Galilee, news at 11. None of that. There was no grandstanding it. This was private for them only. But Jesus answered them, verse 26, and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs. The signs were to verify, to, to verify I am who I said I am. Do you notice that? Miracles are never meant to just encourage your faith and, 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 and for, for in, in and of itself. Miracles are meant to confirm what has been spoken. Confirm the one who spoke the words. They're, they're not just there just to tickle people's fancy. They were there to confirm who Jesus is. And the same thing today. He doesn't do miracles for just, just to do a miracle, just to entertain people. There's a reason for everything he does. And most of the miracles he does are done quietly in a room, in a hospital. When the doctor comes in and says, you know what, you're just filled with cancer. There's no hope for you. We're done. We can't do anything. We've already removed half of your lung. We've already removed your spleen. We've removed part of, you know, one of your kidneys. There's really nothing we can do. It's just chemo, and, and then you know, you're done. Sorry. And can God speak in that room to that person and say, you are healed? And for them to do an MRI or a CT scan afterwards and, and their, their jaws drop. <laughs> How did that happen? Two words, but God, right? But God. He said, you, saw, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves, There's their, and you were filled. There's the motivation. It was the lunch ticket. Hey, this guy's really easy. We don't have to buy anything. We just hang out with him, and we got a free lunch. But notice what Jesus said to them. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes. Notice, he's speaking about physical food. Don't labor for the food which perishes. And that food could be anything. It doesn't have to be a physical food either. It could be something. Anything other than Christ. Because everything else perishes except for him and his word. You seek me because you saw the signs. But he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Have you known people to come to Jesus only for the temporary benefits? Until those benefits cease and then they abandon him. They run away from him. I've seen this so many times in, ever since I've been a Christian. I've seen men and women hurting Maybe their family's on the rocks. Maybe their marriage is on the rocks. Their relationship with their girlfriend is on the rocks. And they're, and they're all distraught and they're crying. Maybe they got an alcohol problem. Maybe a drug problem. Maybe they've been busted with drugs. Maybe they've been caught stealing it at, at work. Maybe they're, they've lost their job and they're just like, oh, I ain't gonna do anything to get, you know, if I could just get my job back. Lord, I'll give my heart to you. And, and then they supposedly give their heart to the Lord, and, and, and he, he does that. He, he restores the relationship in his grace. He does something as a token to encourage them. And once they got what they really wanted, the rabbit's foot has already been rubbed. Now they walk away from him. Thank you so much. I've seen it so much. Have you seen it? There's someone in my mind right now who, you know, that, that is the case. And it's an unfortunate thing. It's an unfortunate thing.
This kind of interchange with the Lord is often called a jailhouse conversion. There's a lot of conversions that happen in the jailhouse. And it's not for me to know which ones are genuine and which ones are real. God knows. But there are people who receive Christ in prison only to be on their best behavior to get privileges. To be on, uh, on good behavior and to get privileges. To have their prison sentence shortened. But as soon as they spring the coop and they're back out, they're back to their drug and they're back to their stealing. Back to their thieving. And that happens all the time. But there are the... Other times when there is genuine conversions, and hallelujah for those. You know, praise the Lord for that. But only God knows that. We can't see that. But people take advantage of the Lord all the time. And you know what? In His grace, He even allows it sometimes. For His own purposes and for different seasons. But Jesus saw right through the reason they were seeking Him. Notice he says, do not labor for the food that perishes. And let me ask you the question this morning, what are you filling your life with? Are the things that fill your life things that glorify Jesus? Or are they only things that satisfy your flesh, that satisfy your lust, or satisfy your ego? What things are you filling your life with? What kind of entertainments are you filling your life with? The movies that you're watching, the music that you're listening to. The conversations that you're engaging in at work. Guys, what are the kinds of things? What are we filling our lives with? What are we filling it with? You know, there's no greater thing than to fill your life with the Word of God and with service to Him. Serving others, serving Christ, living for Him, walking the walk, talking the talk, walking the walk. There's no greater life than that. Truly, when you do that and you walk in the ways of the Lord, there is a great peace that overcomes you. There's a great, wonderful feeling in your heart that you're right with God. And there are so many people that need to be right with God, that aren't right with God. The vast majority of people today are not right with God. They are at enmity with God. There is a battle of the soul, and they could care less about Him But we are to honor Jesus with everything. What does it say in Colossians? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because guess what, folks? Everything on this earth is temporal, isn't it? Ultimately, we know this earth will be consumed with flame. The Bible tells us that in 1 Peter, that this world that now is will be, uh, it won't be flooded, but it's going to be, it's going to be consumed with fire. So how important are the things that I'm feasting on that are eternal, the things that are going to yield a bumper crop of faith and of good things that will last for eternity rather than those things that I do now, that those works that I do that I know are no good, and they're just going to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be burned up. They're going to be little smoke vapors of everything that I did in my flesh. And I thought I was, you know, I said that I was doing it for God, but really I was doing it for myself. And so all those things are just going to go. It's going to look like a birthday candle or birthday cake being blown out. A lot of little smoke puffs everywhere. But what are you feasting on? And I have to ask myself the same question. What am I? What are we feasting on? Have you learned through experience that the pursuits and the gaining of material possessions 
Those things often just turn to gravel in our mouths, don't they? When we find that they really don't satisfy like they promise. Because the world makes great promises. The devil makes great promises. He holds the carrot out in front of you. And we're always like that little hamster in the cage, you know, in the little round cage, just going, <laughs> you know, trying to get the, the thing in front of us. But we never get it. Until you come to Christ. And then you could care less about the carrot. Because he's everything. And now all of a sudden your heart is filled. So what am I feasting on? What did John tell us? He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, notice, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Love that verse. Don't love the things in the world. They're going to perish with the using. But rather, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Do those things for God. Do those things for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed you. What are you investing in? Are you investing in in the important things in life? Are you investing in things that God sees as important? What does it tell us in Matthew? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, you can have all of the material possessions in the world, if that's your motivation, if that's really your heart, but they'll never satisfy. There's nothing wrong with having things. Just don't let your thing have you. You own it. Never let it own you. And see, that's the problem with most of us. As we get things, and pretty soon they own us, and pretty soon we got to maintain. we got to maintain, and then we have to work extra hard to maintain that thing. The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. And I love that. Paul said to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age. Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Notice, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. And he can give you those things because he knows they're not going to be an idol to you. Whenever whenever there's something in your life that you just have to have and you do anything to get it, be very careful because that is the thing that is going to draw you away. But if you're like, I could take it or leave it, God can give it to you. To bless you. And he does. He does that. Because he knows that it's not going to take you away. And you'll always be thanking and praising him for it. Isn't that a wonderful... You know, there's nothing better than to see somebody who's received something. Maybe has worked for something. Maybe has obtained something. And they're just so thankful to God. And they give thanks to him. They take care of it. They're good stewards. but But it's not an idol to them. It's a wonderful thing to see. It's a good thing for us to consider for ourselves that we don't get caught up in those things. In Matthew 19, Jesus spoke to this rich young ruler. And he says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said, which ones? And Jesus lists those commandments for him. 
And the young man said, all these things I have kept from my youth, but what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be mature, if you want to be of full age, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And the young man turned away with great sorrow. Why? Because he had invested in the world. He had invested in the world with no thought of giving to the kingdom of God. Whatever that means. There's a lot of different ways we can give to the kingdom of God. We can do it in our tithing. We can, give it, we can do it by giving to others. We can do it by giving our time, of our energies, the first fruits of our energies, better. We can give to missionaries. We can support Christian music. We can hand out Bibles. There's many ways that we can do that. But instead of investing in the Lord, this young man, he chose to invest in the world. And the rust and the canker of all the stuff that he had obtained will be eaten up before him in time. We don't really hear much about him afterwards, but I'm sure it's not a very good story. So what are you investing in? What am I investing in? Invest in the food that doesn't perish. Everlasting life. Invest in Christ. Invest in the things of God. Those are the things that folks are, when we get to heaven, when we are in his presence, you are going to be rewarded for what we did with our resources. We're going to be rewarded for what we did and, and don't misunderstand me. You don't have to be in the ministry to do these things because every one of you, most of you, are in jobs in the, in, the, in the real world, so to speak. But you can be a light and a blessing to everyone around you. You can be the best example. You can be the hardest worker. You can be the most faithful person to pray for those who are hurting. Do those things, and in that way, you will be blessing God. And when you see him face to face, you will be rewarded Don't think that you've got to be a Bible teacher or that you've got to be a worship leader or that you've got to go around witnessing to the different houses in your area in order to be blessed by God and for him to smile upon you. No, you just be where you're at and be faithful in everything you do. Amen? I need to do that. I want to be faithful to him. I do. I want to give everything to him. Notice when he says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures, what? To everlasting life. So Jesus obviously is comparing the physical and the, or the temporary with the spiritual or the eternal. And it's so important for us to consider this. Why? Because life is short. We have a very short time on this earth. What does it say in James? Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. It's true. When I was a teenager, I thought I had all the time in the world, and it felt like it. And then I got in my 20s, and things started to slow down, in my, or actually speed up. And then in the 30s, things kept speeding up, 40s, 50s, and now I'm 51, and, and it just seems like life is just taking off. And I'm like, where did the time go? I got more behind me than I got in front of me. And it becomes sobering, doesn't it? Job said, man, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Our life in this tabernacle is so short. The decisions that we make while in this body or in this tent, as Paul would tell us, will determine our eternal destiny, won't it? 
I would encourage you to read Psalm 90, but we'll just pick a few things out of this. Moses wrote this psalm, and he said, For a thousand years in your sight is as, um, is like, are like yesterday when it's past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up, and in the morning it flourishes and grows up, and in the evening it is cut down and withers. And then down in verse 9 he says, For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for soon it is cut off and we fly away. And he ends it in verse 12 when he says, As a result of all these things, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom to be able to apply the knowledge that we read in the Bible to apply it every day to our life. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? And our eternal existence will not consist of some vapor or spirit. Do you know that? When a person dies, their spirit or their soul, their spirit and their soul, they either return to God or they go to hell. There's only two places. We know that at the rapture, we will receive a new body that can withstand eternity. But those who went to hell, they too will be resurrected at the great white throne judgment. They will receive a body that can withstand the flames and the torment of hell and never be quenched. It will never be consumed. A body outfitted for that. Can you imagine? That makes me want to run closer and harder and faster into the arms of Jesus. Yes, the fear of hell brought me to Christ. I did not want to go to hell. I deserved it. And I still do, by the way. (laughs) But I run into his arms and I say, God, I'm so glad that I'll never see that place because of what you have done. Because what you alone have done. I have, even as a Christian, I've messed up. And I know you can probably say the same thing of yourself. But you're not going to go to hell, Christian. You are secure in your Father's arms. You are secure. So who is supporting you? Who is sustaining you? I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 121. He says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? From where does it come from? And the answer is in the next verse. My help comes from Jehovah who made heaven and earth. If he made heaven and earth, I think he is very much able to help me. The Lord upbraided the Israelites because they leaned upon Egypt. Rather than leaning upon him, they leaned upon Egypt. In Isaiah 31, it says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. That's the problem. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet, and he says in Jeremiah chapter 2, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The cistern has a promise when, it, when it's healthy and when it's new, it's unmarred, and it, the rain comes and it fills with water. But a broken cistern, the water just goes right out. And that's what everything is in life apart from Christ. It's like a broken cistern, all the helps that we run to when we're struggling. It could be a credit card. It could be a friend. It could be your neighbor. It could be your, you know, your wife or your spouse, which is not always bad. But who do you run to first? Who supports you? Run to Jesus Christ. Run to him. Run 
to him. He is the strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are what? They are saved. Run to Jesus often. And notice, because God the Father at the end of that verse, God the Father has set his seal upon him, upon Jesus. It's a, it's a signet. When that signet is pressed down in the wax, it is permanent. And no one can open that letter where a signet ring has been waxed to except under the penalty of death. It's an irrecoverable seal, only able to be opened up by the recipient. That's the kind of seal that God has set over his son. And he set over you and I. So they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Everybody wants to work for their salvation. They want something to have, have a part in it somehow. But what does the Bible say? That by grace you've been saved. By grace, God's unmerited favor, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gift of God. You cannot earn it. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You can't do enough good things to earn God's salvation. Impossible. It's a fool's errand to try and earn God's favor. Because guess what? If you're a Christian, you already have his favor. He already looks upon you and smiles. I like that, don't you? So Jesus, verse 29, he answered and said to them, This is the work of God. Notice, the work, singular. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Notice Jesus' response. It's simple, it's direct, and yet the biggest stumbling block for everyone on the planet. Because man likes to feel like they've had some bearing in their salvation. I want to feel like I had some Something to do with it. All you had to do was believe in him. It's a work, yeah. It's a work that he gave you the faith even to do. Believe in him. We need to believe him. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then? What miracle are you going to perform? We want to be entertained, Jesus. Remember Herod said that? Oh, I just want to see Jesus. I'm going to see if he can do a magic trick. You know, pull the rabbit out of the hat. A real rabbit out of a hat. You know, take a turban and pull out a jackrabbit full grown, you know, when the hat's only that big. Herod wanted to be tickled. He wanted to be tickled. What sign are you going to do, Jesus, after you did this miracle of the loaves and the bread? What sign are you going to do? Because guess what? The, The world says seeing is believing, but guess what? Seeing is not believing, but rather believing is seeing, right? Believing is seeing, not the other way around. In John's Gospel, when uh, Jesus was speaking to Martha at Lazarus' resurrection, what did he say to her? He said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? There it is. got to believe and then you'll see. Not see and then believe. It's very natural to see and believe. Yeah, if you, if, you know. Somebody tells you they bought you a new car and it shows up out here after, you know, after the service. You're like, well, I see it. I believe it. There it is. But to believe it, then you'll see it. That's the kind of thing that God wants us to get a hold of. Because when you come to Jesus and you're born again, what happens? Your eyes are open for the first time. My eyes were opened. My eyes were, I had scales over my eyes. I was dull in my senses, until the Spirit of God came and took residence in my heart, and now everything is different. I see everything from a different perspective, a true perspective, a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. 
Do you view everything through a biblical worldview? Or is your worldview still slanted by what you see in CNN and Fox News? Your worldview is based on the Word of God. That cre- that's what molds your worldview. And if that happens, blessed are we. So notice what they said. They said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven. You see, the multiplying of the bread and the fish that they just witnessed should have brought them to an understanding of who he was. It should have piqued their curiosity about what happened in the desert when God provided manna for the Jews who came out of, out of Egypt. He came out of Egypt. And I love what it says in Galatians. It says the law was our tutor. It was a, it was a, um, it was a tutor. To bring us to Christ. The law was designed to prepare us for Jesus. And so what did the law tell us in Exodus 16? It told us that event when they finally came out. It was like the second month, I think on the 15th day, after they had come out of Egypt. And they're hungry. And they were murmuring and complaining against Moses and Aaron. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation, they're complaining, right? And then it says, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the pots of meat, where we ate bread to the full. For we have brought you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I might test them that they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day when they shall prepare twice as much so that on the seventh day they can rest. So God even made provision for the Sabbath that they were to rest in, that he would allow them to do that. And God provided even meat in the evening at one point. Provided quail. And they woke up in the next morning and they saw the stuff on the ground And they said, what is that? It was some kind of frost. It looked like coriander seed, kind of white, and it tasted like uh, oil and honey. And they literally said, what is that? And that's what manna means. What's that? That's a really great name. What's that? I have no idea what it is, but it tastes pretty good. Let's gather up as much as we can and bring it into the house and get the kids on a sugar buzz. No, they gathered it, right? They gathered it, and that was a... That was a, an, an, it was a foreshadowing. God was feeding them physically, but later on when Christ would come, he would feed them spiritually, and he would give them spiritual life, spiritual understanding, and have the Spirit of God indwelling them. That's what Jesus came to do, to save men from their sin. And so the Old Testament was like that schoolmaster, that tutor, to finally bring them to the point where they're at right now. When he says, he goes on in verse 33 and says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to you. And this life that Jesus gives, again, is spiritual and eternal, not physical and temporal.
So it's important that we consider these things. You remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. She was out there getting water, and the woman, they had this really wonderful dialogue, and the Lord was drawing her out. And then finally the woman said to, him, said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I may not come that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Does that sound very similar to what we see in our text now in verse 34? What did they say? They say to him, Lord, give us this bread always, still thinking in the natural. And that's what we do. Man typically does that. We think in the, in the natural. Very seldomly do we initially start off thinking spiritual. And so we always think carnally. 